Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Hey, we got all kinds of things coming up here at North Shore Vineyard. Uh, this coming weekend, we have our newcomers lunch. So if you're new to the vineyard and you want to come get to know us better, get ready to hang out with us after service this Sunday at 12 o'clock. Also, next week, we will be starting Relate, our course on relationships. And we have some other things coming up as well that you can check out on our website, northshorevineyard.org, or our Facebook page. So, But at the moment, let's go ahead and head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church. The title of this message is WWJBD. Thanks for listening. through 42 it says the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said look the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world this is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me I myself did not know him but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel then John gave this this testimony I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day John was there again with two disciples. When when he saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come, replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. This first, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Rock, which is translated Peter. Today we're looking at John the Baptist. And I got to tell you, one thing as a pastor that I find odd about John the Baptist is he did it all wrong. You know, I have been in the last 20 plus years of, of ministry whether pastorally or otherwise, I have been to one class and seminar uh, and conference after another that talks about church growth, how to grow a big church. And usually what these classes tell you, it usually just comes down to a handful of things. All you got to do is have awesome, relevant preaching, good worship, uh, good children's ministry, uh, a relevant location, you know, that people, you know, where people are passing by and, you know, a lot of money doesn't help either, doesn't hurt either. So, but when you look at John the Baptist, 
It's as if John the Baptist took everything that we know about having a successful ministry and he just threw the rule book out the window. John the Baptist was a crazy man, you know? <laughs> he was, it says that he was dressed in camel hair and he ate locusts dipped in wild honey. I mean, just imagine you come up on somebody dressed in camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey, you'd be like, hmm, I don't know. I think I'm going to go to another church. <laughs> and as far as the location of his ministry, John the Baptist wasn't up in the middle of Jerusalem where you would naturally think to put a good church. He was out in the middle of nowhere, out in the desert wilderness down by the Jordan River. And yet, for all the ways that he was breaking the rules on how to have a successful ministry, people were flocking to him from all over Israel and Judea to be baptized in the Jordan River for the repentance of sins. And John's main message, his only message was really repent. What does repent mean? You know, we've got a, we've got a, a character that has been in downtown Covington the last few months in the afternoon, and he holds up a sign that says, you know, right, right on the end of the street, says, you know, repent, the end is near. John's message is really repent, the beginning is near. <laughs> Repent really just simply means we got a lot of baggage with that world because a lot of times we associate it with certain styles of, of teaching or preaching. But repent just means to rethink. Rethink your life. A new reality is here. Prepare your heart for that reality. That's John the Baptist's message. And here, in this story today, we pick up the transition from the John the Baptist ministry to the Jesus the Messiah ministry. And when John sees Jesus coming, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, what does this Lamb of God thing mean? There's various opinions from different theologians and Bible scholars. Some see this a tie into the, you know, perhaps the, the atoning work, a, a atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Some see this maybe as a, a reflection of the, you know, the, the Old Testament custom to, to take a scapegoat. The original scapegoat is basically the, the, the priest, once a year, they would pray on behalf of the, the Jewish people, and they would lay their hands on this goat and, and symbolically transfer the sin of the people onto this goat. But instead of killing the goat, they'd let it go free. They would let it escape. Scapegoat. Ah, there we go. I see light bulbs. <laughs> but I think if we really want to know what the writer of the Gospel of John meant by this, I think we need to go to the end of the Gospel of John when we see Jesus Christ is crucified on the very hour of the very day when the Passover lambs were sacrificed for the Passover meal. Now, here's a little, just a brief recap of the original Passover Children of Israel had been enslaved for some 400 years in Egypt. And God raises up this, this deliverer named Moses. And you've seen the movie. There's all these, these plagues and various signs and wonders to get Pharaoh's attention. And, and, and sometimes Pharaoh's about to let him go, and then he just, his, his heart keeps getting hardened. After all, it's a million slaves. That's, that's uh, going to be quite a hit to the economy of Egypt. But God tells Moses, there's one last sign I'm going to do that's going to set this people free. Tonight, I want you to all, uh, as a community, to eat a meal together. Take a little lamb, 
and you're going to slaughter this lamb and take a little bit of the blood of that lamb, put it on, on the doorpost of your home, and you're going to eat this meal together, but you're not just going to sit down and eat this meal. You're going to eat this meal with your clothes packed, your suitcases ready to go, and, and, and you're going to be ready to get out of Dodge because that's what's going to happen in the morning. And so all over, all over Egypt, the, the Hebrew people gathered, and they celebrated this meal, and that night the plague of death went through Egypt, and anywhere there wasn't blood on the doorpost of the home, the firstborn were taken. That was the first Passover. And here, thousands of years later, Jewish people still celebrate the Passover. And it was during the Passover festival that Jesus was crucified, during the very hour where the ant lambs were slaughtered. And I believe the point about all this is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He is the blood on the doorpost of the universe. He's not just freeing one select group of people. He's, he's not just uh, freeing people from the tyranny of, of one empire. He's freeing us from a much bigger enemy, from death. Jesus' blood on the doorposts of the universe, it launches us into a new exodus. This is a, a new exodus story. We're heading to the promised land. I don't know how many of you remember. I'm, I'm, most of y'all were alive back in the early 1990s, it looks like. There's a few of you that weren't. But if you remember this, back in the early 90s, there was quite a fashion craze that took off in the world of Christian churches. It was these little bracelets that said WWJD. Did anybody have a WWJD bracelet? Maybe you had a bumper sticker. <laughs> anybody got a WWJD tattoo? That's it. <laughs> Looking for an idea? Um, but, but the idea with this whole WWJD bracelet thing was to remind yourself to ask the question throughout the day, what would Jesus do? That's a great question, isn't it? I mean, honestly, it's a question the church in America ought to ask a little bit more often. So when you get into situations on the job, rather than just acting by default, you look down and say, well, what would Jesus do? And that's a, that's a great way to think of things, but there are some problems with it. Number one, we only have certain examples of how Jesus acted in certain situations. We know how Jesus acted around his friends and his disciples and his uh, and sinners and sick people and hungry people. We can see examples for that and we can go, yeah, this is what Jesus would probably do there. But we don't have much of a grid for how Jesus would raise, raise kids or how Jesus would survive working in a cubicle. He'd survive all right, I'm sure. Um, and the other problem is that as much as we can be inspired by Jesus, you and me aren't Jesus, right? Right? If you don't learn anything today. <laughs> we are not Jesus. When it comes to the story today, I think we ought to move from WWJD to WWJBD. What would John the Baptist do? Why? 
Because I think John the Baptist in this, in, in the few passages, we don't even have a whole lot on John the Baptist, but there's a few things that, that, that we can learn from John the Baptist that if you can get these two things down and practice these two things this year, this will be the most amazing year of experiencing God in your life. The first thing we learn from John the Baptist is that he was awake and alert to the moving of the Holy Spirit. What does he say? When he said, after he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he says, this is the one who's the Messiah. I didn't know who it was. But the Holy Spirit told me to look for the one he was going to, the, the Holy Spirit would come upon and remain. And so John's testimony about Jesus being the Messiah, it's not based on the fact that Jesus was born to the right family or that other people have said he's the Messiah. It is solely based on the revelation of God. Jesus saw the, I mean, John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus and remain. And he said, that's the guy. Now, if you want to read that story, it's back in the early part of Matthew. John baptizes Jesus, and it says the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and you could hear the voice from heaven, the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Number one, John the Baptist was awake and alert to discern what the Holy Spirit was doing. Number two, John knew his part in the story. Did you notice... (laughs) You notice this thing here, as soon as John the Baptist points out, behold, the Lamb of God, a couple of his disciples leave. We're going with this dude. They get out of the way. And if you read in John chapter 3, verse 30, somebody actually comes up to John the Baptist and they go, dude, look, all your, all your followers, all your disciples, they're, they're starting to go follow Jesus. How's that make you feel, John? People do that to pastors all the time. I notice so-and-so is going to that other church. How do you feel about that? It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> but I love John the Baptist's answer. He said, this is the whole reason why I came. This is my whole ministry. He must increase, and I must decrease. This isn't supposed to be the John the Baptist show forever, I've been very successful up to this point in preparing the way for the king. Now the king is here. Now I'm moving to the background. He knew his part in the story. One of my favorite authors, who I consider really a mentor from afar, his writings have really helped me being a pastor probably more than anybody, is Eugene Peterson. And he wrote a book a few years ago called The Pastor, a memoir from his years of pastoring up in Baltimore. And Eugene Peterson talks about how in in the early years of his church, him and some other pastors from uh, the Baltimore area decided to get together with a psychiatrist from Johns Hopkins University there who would just meet with him for kind of group counseling once a week for a couple of years. And Eugene Peterson said, this was amazing. Like, I started dealing with stuff on the inside. I had no idea. He said, it was changing my life so much that I almost wanted, he was actually uh, began thinking about quitting being a pastor to become a therapist. But somewhere along the line, he felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of God that you're not called to be a therapist, Eugene. You're called to be a pastor. 
Because here's the problem. When it came to the people in his own congregation, he, he, he went into the temptation of seeing people as problems to be fixed. We do that, don't we? I mean, I hope it's just not pastors. Sometimes it is so easy when we see somebody having a problem to just look at them, to, to, to make their identity that problem. And to just see them as something that needs to be fixed. But Eugene Peterson felt the Holy Spirit saying to him, I've not called you to look at people as problems to be fixed, but people created in my image who need to be led in worship of God. When I read that, oh, and he goes on to say, he says, if you're a pastor and you don't deal with this messianic complex, trying to be God, <laughs> it's going to eat your lunch. You know, I just got back from a pastor's retreat in San Antonio this last week. And just, the, just hanging out with other pastors and hearing their stories, I really believe so much of the burnout and depression <laughs> And the lack of career longevity as a pastor oftentimes is related back to this very issue. We are trying to be God for people instead of lead people to God. You know? I don't know. I mean, I'll say most of the pastors that I know got into pastoring because they loved people and they wanted to help people out. They didn't sign up to be a pastor because it was a lucrative career move. They, they wanted to do it to help people. That's why I got in it. I wanted to help people. But I've had to learn this lesson. And in the year, <laughs> I remember right after Katrina, uh, I was living on the South Shore working with the, the New Orleans Vineyard. I was the worship pastor there. And immediately after Katrina, we hit the ground running. And... In addition to our regular jobs on staff there, we were all working in the community, you know, gutting houses, ripping out sheetrock and carpet and feeding people meals and hosting job fairs and all kinds of things we could help to bring the community back. It was all great stuff, and I believed in it. But I look back on that point in my life, and I'm like, I, I was, <laughs> after about a year and a half of it, I was almost dead, you know. I mean, physically, I was, I was in trouble. I was burned out. I was stressed out. Thank God for good friends. Uh, a coworker of mine, Susie Scarborough, gave me this book. She was probably one of the few people that could give me this book and me not feel insulted. <laughs> a book called Emotionally Healthy Church. And in this book, it had a little test you could take to determine your emotional maturity. I'm like, I got this. I've been in ministry for years. Take this test. And it had six different uh, categories to rate you in as either an infant, <laughs> a, a, a child, a teenager, or an adult on your emotional maturity. I took the test, and then I turned the page over to see my scores, and I was not too happy about two categories. <laughs> there were two categories in which I realized, like, I'm not really thriving here. One was coping with grief and loss, and the other was living within God-given limits. 
And after I picked up the book from across the room where I'd thrown it, (laughs) I began to ask the Holy Spirit, is this true, Lord? (laughs) And God led me through a time of reflection over my own life. And I could look back, and in my whole adult life as a Christian, I had this pattern of whenever I would face some sort of negative emotion like grief, loss, anger, even fear, one of my coping mechanisms for dealing with that was to throw myself into work and just start working harder, which was great after Katrina. I mean, we we hadn't lost as much as a lot of people, but, you know, we were homeless for about three months, and we had, you know, stuff flooded, and it it was a difficult time, and I was totally oblivious to how difficult it was most of the time. Now, my wife, she was feeling it. And my my reaction to my wife was, why can't you just be happy? We're alive. We're above ground. She was like, well, I kind of miss all these people that we used to hang out with that have moved away. I miss our old apartment. I'm like, we got this new apartment, this new condo. It's much more beautiful. Be happy. Be thankful. I'm I'm not real easy to get along with sometimes. (laughs) But as I began to reflect over my life, particularly in that, that, that year and a half after Katrina, I began to see that I had thrown myself into overwork, living beyond God-given limits, because I was trying to avoid all the negative stuff that I just didn't want to be in touch with at all. And what it ended up doing was it, it, it fed into this whole messianic complex, <laughs> I was trying to be God for other people, to fix other people, and I was dying on the inside. My family, I was not being present to my wife or my kids. I was just, it was eating my lunch. And so when I read this stuff from Eugene Peterson, I'm like, I can totally identify. I want to help people, but at the end of the day, I'm not God. I can only do what I can do. We all want to help people, right? I think. Maybe you don't. No, it's kind of like being selfish. But we can only do what we can do. We are not God. And we have to remind ourselves of that, particularly if you are in the industries that help people, whether therapist, medical industry, you know, nonprofits. I think so much of what we do in there, because we care about people, because we see people suffering, it is so easy to take on the burdens of everything they do and and to just be crushed by it. I remember when we first started this church, we were like maybe 40 adults or something at that time. We were in that little building over there, and we had a crazy week. We had something like six people at St. Tammany Hospital at once. And I remember being a young pastor six, seven months into this thing, going from one floor to the next at St. Tammany Hospital trying to be with people, and I just started going into depression because I was trying to, to, I cared about them, but I was trying to carry all these burdens for all these people, and I can hardly carry my own stuff. John the Baptist not only could identify what the Holy Spirit was up to, but he knew his part in the story. I'm not God. I'm just here preparing the way. I have to remind myself as a pastor, I'm not God. I want to help people. I can only do what I can do, and I have to trust God with the rest. 
I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Sabbath. If you really, if you don't observe Sabbath, I don't think you have to get legalistic about, you know, what day of the week. I hope not, uh, or I'm in trouble, because uh, my Sabbath is usually on Mondays. But if you don't practice taking at least a day of, one day a week off, you need to try. Because there's something about taking time off and taking our hands off and saying, God, I've done all I can this week. I take my, my hands off and I trust you with the rest. And that's a good discipline on saying, I'm not God and you are. So I want to lead us into a little bit of a reflection. And I just ask you that, that in the coming days, take this bulletin home with you. And look at these questions. Being alert to what the Spirit of God is doing is not some freaky, spooky, you know, thing. You know, a lot of times when the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives, you notice it by, like I said during worship, your heart kind of burning within you. I was sitting down talking to a friend the other night, and I just, you ever had that thing happen in a conversation where you go from just having a conversation to, wow. God is in this place. I walked away from what was an ordinary conversation, me and a couple of pastor friends hanging out, smoking a cigar, back to, you know, in the hotel, outside area, whatever you call that. And in the midst of this conversation, I sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to me. You don't have to get all spooky about discerning the Holy Spirit, but it's just asking that question, Lord, help me to pay attention to you in my everyday, ordinary life. Help me to be awake to what you're doing. So in this coming week, here are a few questions to ask. How do I sense the Holy Spirit moving in my life and in the lives of others in this past week? When I consider my own journey, how do I sense God moving in it? When I look at other people, you know, like David and Derek, Mitchell. How do I see God moving in their lives? And ask yourself, look at the people around you. What do I see God doing there? Are there situations in my life where I'm trying to be the savior of others rather than to help others move towards and with what God is doing? Maybe you feel burned out this morning because you're trying to carry things that you were not made to carry because you're not God. Maybe you're, what you have to wrestle through this week is, God, how can I let go? How can I do what I can do and let go and trust you with the rest? And then the final question is, where is God inviting me to trust him, to surrender the potential outcomes of situations that are very important to me, to him? Where is God inviting us to surrender? One of the reasons we get caught in this messianic complex, we are just control freaks, and we want to do everything to control the outcome. What, how do I need to surrender my expectations of how things need to work to God and, let, and trust Him with it? Why don't you all stand? I just want to bless each and every one of you with the ability to see what the Spirit is doing this week. 
May you be able to let your hands go and to trust God. May you be open to what God is doing. And may you have the courage to follow him. May you know what you need to do and what you don't need to do. And may you experience the empowering presence of God to walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming out this morning. And we'll see you at Newcomer's Lunch next Sunday if you're a newcomer and you want to eat lunch with us. Otherwise, God bless you. If you need some prayer, feel free to come up.